seven, six, six, Welcome to IR Talk, a podcast on the history, theory, and practice of international relations. I'm your host, Yolan Kluger. This week, I spoke with Professor Michael Morgan. Professor Morgan is an associate professor of history at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's the author of The Final Act, The Helsinki Accords and the Transformation of the Cold War. I loved this conversation as the Helsinki Accords are a fascinating subject and Professor Morgan understands them better than anyone else and is able to communicate that knowledge in an engaging and engrossing manner. As a brief note, there will not be an episode next week due to Thanksgiving. Our talk will return the following week with a new episode. To all my American listeners, happy Thanksgiving. One last note, if you enjoy my podcast, I would love it if you would leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts as it helps others find the show. Thank you. Professor John Lewis Gaddis in episode seven of this podcast said that in doing a dissertation or a master's thesis or even a paper for a seminar, whatever the topic is, be able to explain its larger significance to a wider audience. So it's entirely possible that you can take a microtopic, not just Switzerland, but a village in Switzerland infected by a very particular bug or plague or something. It would be a very tiny topic. It'd be microscopic. But if somehow that had very large consequences, if somehow it set off some kind of plague, like whatever set off the coronavirus, then you've got a really big topic on your hands right there. So Professor Gaddis, he was, was he your advisor in graduate school? And I'm sure he gave similar advice. So how did that framework influence the writing of your PhD thesis and now book? That was exactly, or one of the pieces of advice that uh, Professor Gaddis gave me and other PhD students as other advisees in grad school. The trick was to find a topic that would be big enough to be exciting, but small enough to be feasible. Not quite, maybe not so small as a village in Switzerland, but the emphasis was always on finding the larger significance of whatever it was that you were studying. Maybe the most important question that he asked, and he asked it not just of me, but of uh, his other students too, is also one of the simplest questions, which every historian needs to ask, and that is, so what? You have a topic, you think it's interesting, it's interesting to you, but you have to explain why other people should care about it too. You have to explain what its larger significance is. And for some topics that may be, the answer to the so what question may be self-evident, but in most, for most projects, for most historians, they need to think about how to make that topic relevant to the wider field of history, to their students, or even to the general public. And it's a question that I raise with my students now all the time. So what, why should anyone care about it? The simplest questions are often the hardest ones to answer and therefore the most valuable. How did you uh, stumble upon the Helsinki Accords as a subject to write about and to determine sort of a greater significance? When I started grad school, I was interested in Cold War history very generally. And I had come across the Helsinki Accords as an undergraduate in passing. In fact, one of the uh, professors who taught an undergraduate seminar at uh, the University of Toronto was a retired Canadian ambassador. Uh, his name was Tom Delworth. 
And he, in fact, was one of the uh, heads of the Canadian delegation at, during the Helsinki negotiations. And it was in his class that I first uh, came across the Helsinki process and, and read about them. Uh, but it wasn't until I got to grad school that I had an inkling of their larger significance. When I was searching for a dissertation topic at the beginning of grad school, I was looking for something that would be international, that would allow me to examine a problem from the perspective of several different countries, uh, many different archives, many different national capitals, many different languages, hopefully something from both sides of the, of the Iron Curtain, both sides of the Cold War. I was also interested, this is in the aftermath of September 11th and the, the era of the, the beginning of the invasion of Iraq. And I was also interested in the question of human rights in international politics. And so those two questions, the international perspective, the relevance to human rights and significance to the Cold War as a whole, they all seem to point towards the Helsinki Accords, the Helsinki process, which had been at that point studied by political scientists. And there had been certain uh, arguments put forward, sort of standard lines of interpretation, you might say, of the Helsinki Accords that had been put forward, but no one up to that point had studied the process in depth in a 360 degree fashion, looking at all of the major participants. So it, it jumped out to me as potentially fruitful, potentially exciting. And it was also, this is maybe the third factor, this also happened to be the moment when many of the archives, the archival documents from the 1970s were being declassified and were becoming available to researchers for the first time. So it was a matter of, I, I suppose, uh, good timing and luck and uh, a topic that seemed to fit with some of the broad questions that I was interested in at the time. So I took the idea to Professor Gaddis and he immediately said, go for it. Did an understanding of strategy affect uh, the way your book is written, the way you approach the topic? Because it seems throughout the narrative that there's all these points of contingency and that you couldn't have, that one couldn't have seen how the process would have ended up from the beginning. And that's sort of some of the reason why some people didn't pay so much attention at the beginning, but did an understanding of grand strategy of other methods, did that affect the writing of your book? Yes. I was a student in the Yale Grand Strategy class, which I know you've discussed on this podcast uh, on a couple of occasions. And so that way of thinking certainly influenced the way that I thought about the unfolding of the negotiations and also how to frame them in writing the book. There's a basic challenge that a lot of international historians face, which is how do you make a long paper trail of telegrams going back and forth and memoranda and so on? How do you make that exciting? How do you make that uh, accessible? And how do you set that in a larger framework, a larger interpretive framework that brings out the importance of the topic to people who may not care about the bureaucratic minutia of who said what to whom? And I knew that would be a challenge. 
in writing this book because uh, the archives contain tens of thousands of pages of documentation on the negotiations. Lots of abstruse arguments about the finer points of the Helsinki Accords. And I knew that it wouldn't be enough simply to reproduce those minutiae. No one would want to read a book like that. It would, it, would, it would put any reader to sleep. And I also knew that telling the story in that way would, would miss the bigger importance of what was going on. Strategy was a way of, this idea of strategy was a way of illuminating that larger importance. And so it was a way of framing the topic for the book and interpreting the subject historically. And it was a way also of helping to explain those minutiae, to explain why the diplomats involved, why the players involved were acting as they did. And the way I try to frame the book is as, a, as an interplay or as a struggle even between the structural changes of the mid-Cold War of the 1960s and the 1970s, these political, economic, social, intellectual processes that are shifting over a longer term period, in many ways beyond the control of individual leaders. And then on the other hand, the strategies that the leaders developed, the Americans, the British, the French, the West Germans, the Soviets, the strategies that they developed in response to those structural changes. And so the book uses Helsinki as a way to look at that collision between structural change on the one hand and strategy on the other. One thing I noticed about the book is uh, how engagingly written it is. And I've read a lot of contemporary history, contemporary international history, and it's not, I mean, it's not as engaging and certainly it's very unique and very difficult to write well. So was that certainly one of the main goals of the of writing it and how'd you go about it? That's a high compliment, thank you. It absolutely was one of my goals. Again, I knew that the subject, if handled badly could be deadly boring, <laughs> but I knew that it wasn't boring. I knew that it was exciting and important and fascinating. And I needed a way to, to bring that out. Every historian needs a way to bring out the excitement of the subject. And so I looked for what a journalist would call color to bring out that excitement episodes that I could use to catch the reader's imagination and to illustrate some of the broader themes. And I was fortunate by going through uh, old newspapers from the period to be able to find a lot of color, vivid descriptions. For example, where I start the book, vivid descriptions of the beginning of the Helsinki summit in 1975, where these dozens of leaders gathered in the Finnish capital to sign the product of these intense negotiations. And so there, were, there, were, there was wonderful color about Leonid Brezhnev meeting Urho Kekkonen, the Finnish president, 
and Gerald Ford coming into the city on Air Force One and the soldiers, Finnish soldiers who've been stationed throughout the city to provide security and so on. So that color, that character showing that there are real human beings involved in these processes, making decisions, shaping events and so on. That color, I think, was, was critical to demonstrating the contingency that you mentioned and to grabbing the reader's interest. And you're not always going to find, as a historian, you're not always going to find vivid color for everything that you need to talk about. But I think in general, it's possible to write any subject well and clearly. There's nothing that's, there's no topic that's so complicated that it can't be explained in plain English. That was what I tried to do throughout the book. In cases where I had these great characters and this great color, and also in cases uh, when I was trying to be more analytical, maybe a little bit more conceptual. Were there key influences on your writing of it? I noticed one reviewer mentioned The Guns of August, Barbara Tuchman. The opening is also, uh, I think, similar in many ways. And there's also a chapter called The Pens of August, which is obviously a play on that. So were there was Barbara Tuchman an influence? Were there other historians? Yeah, I, you, you absolutely caught that allusion in the, the title of the chapter. When I was putting the book together, I looked for models of how to do this kind of thing well. And the best recent example, one of the examples that inspired me was Margaret Macmillan's book, Paris 1919, which is an account of an incredibly vivid account of the Paris Peace Conference at the end of the First World War. And it, it brings out in a very powerful way the personalities of the main players and also the stakes of the negotiations. And also Macmillan is wonderful at making small details, villages in Switzerland, to use that metaphor, making them comprehensible to the reader and explaining why they're important. So that was certainly a, an important influence on me in, the, in shaping the narrative of the book and trying to tell a compelling story in a clear way. There were other influences in the way I researched the book and in my analytical and argumentative approach. There's been, as you know, a boom in international history over the last 20 or even 30 years, the so-called new Cold War history, based on the opening up of archives across Europe and East Asia, the United States, and so on. And I thought a lot about the best examples of that new Cold War history when I was writing the book, books that are, are multinational, multi-archival, multilingual in their scope, and that don't simply tell the story from an American perspective, but try to examine the topic from a, from a 360 degree perspective, looking at it from the perspective of, of each of the, the major players. So to think of a, a few works in that category, I could mention Matthew Connolly's first book about the Algerian war, Jeremy Surrey's book about the upheavals of the 1960s, Power and Protest, Lorenz Luthi's book about the Sino-Soviet split. And there, there are many other examples I could go on. But this, the, the huge success of the new Cold War history was a major influence in the background of how I 
researched and argued the book. Something that plays a role in, in your understanding of the Helsinki Accords is this idea of legitimacy. And I typically, I personally associate legitimacy, that's something normally in the realm of political scientists and maybe some historians. So how do you think about utilizing legitimacy as a way of understanding the motivations behind the actors in the Helsinki Accords? Legitimacy was the way that I tried to answer one of the key puzzles of the book, the key puzzles of the topic. And the puzzle is this. The Helsinki process was conceived and pushed by the Soviet Union. And Leonid Brezhnev and other senior Soviet officials invested huge effort in bringing that process to a successful conclusion. And what did it produce? It produced a piece of paper, a very long declaration that was not binding under international law, had no immediate military impact, it didn't redraw the map of Europe. So in a whole number of ways, it was not as obviously important as something like the Congress of Vienna, which did redraw the map of Europe, or the Treaty of Versailles, which did redraw the map of Europe. The Helsinki Accords didn't do that. And yet the Soviets invested enormous effort, enormous political capital, as we would say these days, in pulling it off. Why? Why would they do that? Why would they invest so much effort for a piece of paper? We could ask a similar question of the Western delegations that participated and fought hard to bring about their vision in the negotiations. Why did they make such an effort? Why did they fight so hard? And when I started reading the documents, researching the book, I didn't have a good answer to, to those questions. The, and in fact, you know, I mentioned when I started the topic, there had been a few things written, some very good scholarship written about the Helsinki Accords, about the, the human rights provisions, about their longer term consequences and so on. But none of the scholars who had tackled the subject had really grappled with that fundamental question. Not just what happened, but why? How do we explain it? And as I read more widely in international history, I, I took a, tried to take a step back from this, the immediate period of the 1970s, the immediate topic of the Helsinki Accords to think about it in a, a longer historical trajectory. Where does this fit in the wider history of the Cold War or the wider history of international politics, modern international politics, let's say, over the last 400 years? And so I was reading books like Paul Schroeder's The Transformation of European Politics, Philip Bobbitt's The Shield of Achilles, Henry Kissinger's A World Restored about the Congress of Vienna. And it became clear that the, the central reason why the Helsinki Accords were important, the central reason why so many countries invested so much effort in it was not the raw power that we typically think of when we think about clashes of interest in international affairs. It wasn't about tanks and nuclear weapons. It was actually about something that is less 
tangible, but I think ultimately just as fundamental to international order, the preservation of peace, threat of war, and so on, to international politics in general. And that's this question of legitimacy. Another way to, one way to think about legitimacy is that it's the rules of the road, or to use a different metaphor, it's the operating system of international politics. It's the code, the underlying code that dictates how countries relate to each other, how international politics unfold. What are the, what are the principles that the various states agree to follow in dealing with each other, in trying to solve problems, in managing disputes? That's what legitimacy is. It's a set of rules. And legitimacy is absolutely essential in order to preserve peace. All of the major players need to perceive the system as essentially legitimate. They need to understand, they need to accept the rules as essentially legitimate for the system to hold together. And when that legitimacy fractures, trouble follows. And although very few of the documents that I found ever used the word legitimacy, it became clear to me that that's, that was the, the fundamental unspoken principle. Those were the unspoken fundamental stakes of the negotiations. That's what was making uh, Soviet leaders, Western leaders take this so seriously and fight so hard. They understood that they had to rewrite the rules of legitimacy because of the crises of the 1960s. And they wanted to make sure that those new rules of legitimacy, the new operating system that they were putting together in Helsinki would favor their side, would favor their worldview and their strategy. Why were the countries not willing to accept the sort of tacit legitimacy that was granted by stability? Or was it that there was just such a period of instability or did they want to have something written down so that they could use it to counter interventions or other sorts of things that violate those principles? The argument that I put forward in the book is that a kind of tacit legitimacy did take shape at the end of the Second World War in the structures of what I call the Eastern International Order focused on the Soviet Union. So this is the USSR and the Eastern Bloc, and for a while at least, China. And then the structures of the Western International Order that cohere around the United States. And these structures were political and military, so that means NATO and the Warsaw Pact, but they were also economic. In the West, that means GATT, it means the Bretton Woods system. In the East, it means Comic-Con and the command economy, the centrally planned economies. And it also meant certain ideological principles about the moral superiority of each side. And those principles of legitimacy, I suggest, started to fracture in the 1960s for a variety of reasons. And by the late 1960s, leaders in both East and West recognized that their country's international legitimacy was fracturing. So Soviet leadership within the Eastern international order was fracturing. American leadership in the West was fracturing. And simultaneously, not coincidentally, their political systems, domestic 
legitimacy was also breaking down, which is to say citizens started to lose their faith in the political systems that they were living in. And leaders, and here I'm talking about people like Leonid Brezhnev in the Soviet Union, Richard Nixon in the United States, Philippe Brandt in West Germany, Georges Pompidou in France, they realized that they needed to respond to these crises of legitimacy. And the way to respond to them was to devise new principles of legitimacy that would shore up their domestic systems and their international orders to rebuild their alliances, to rebuild their citizens' faith in the system. And they had different ideas about how to do that. The, and what's interesting is that the American and Soviet approaches were basically congruent. Leaders in Moscow and Washington both wanted to stabilize the Cold War, to make it tolerable in order to relieve some of the pressure that had caused the crises of legitimacy in their systems. Western European leaders though had a different idea. They wanted to transcend the Cold War, to get beyond the Cold War, to escape from it over the long term by hopefully undermining the communist system. And each of those strategies, the, the strategy of transformation and the strategy of stabilization manifested uh, themselves in these colliding approaches in the Helsinki negotiations. So what, the, what was actually going on in the negotiations when the diplomats were arguing about where to put a comma or whether they should use word A or word B with very subtle shadings of meaning, these semantic and grammatical arguments that were taking place at the surface of the negotiations were actually pointing towards these subterranean, these much deeper but unspoken strategic arguments about the fundamental principles of international affairs. And what the leaders hoped was that they would be able to shape the accords in a way that would reflect their own strategies, their own principles that they could then present in this written document to their citizens, to their allies, to the rest of the world in a way that would shore up the legitimacy of their of their side. Something that struck me when I first heard of the, the OSCE, which is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which is the successor to the uh, CSCE, which was set up to for the Helsinki Accords, is that every state gets a veto, every country gets a veto. Um, and I I honestly, I stopped paying attention to it when I heard that. I was like, that's ridiculous. And the CSE operated under those same rules. So what are examples of that affecting the, the negotiations and why did they have that rule? The rule of consensus was absolutely fundamental to the negotiations and also to the significance of the accords. If the negotiations had operated the way the UN General Assembly does, simple majority rule, I think it's hard to see how the accords could have had the impact that they did. The reason that the delegates, the negotiators agreed to operate on consensus was that they, first of all, the, the Soviets and their allies knew that if they were working simply on a majority rule basis, they would be outvoted in every case. And so that was a non-starter from their point of view. But more fundamentally, I think all of the delegates understood 
that in order for this document to have the impact that they hoped that it would, every state had to agree to it, or rather every state had to have the opportunity to disagree. Maybe it's better to put it that way. So that once the document was finished, once it was signed and, and the negotiations were done, no government could say, well, we don't like this principle. We don't quite agree with that interpretation. This, 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 this rule was imposed on us by our adversaries. In other words, uh, no one would have deniability. And because the accords were negotiated by strict consensus, because every state of the 35 states that participated had a veto, that meant that once the negotiations were finished, finally finished after an excruciating two and a half years, the document had real power because everyone had accepted it. Everyone had signed up to it and no one could wriggle out because they had had their opportunity uh, to object when the negotiations were ongoing. Now, what are some examples of how this how this veto system, this consensus system worked in practice. There were big ways and small ways. So the big examples would involve fights between uh, the Soviets and the Western Europeans or the West more generally, the Warsaw Pact and NATO, because they tended to work in, in sync. The alliances tended to operate as blocks in the negotiations the fights between East and West over some of the fundamental rules, some of the fundamental principles, like the inviolability of frontiers. And the Soviets initially wanted, they demanded that the negotiations recognize frontiers, Europe's frontiers as immutable, which means permanent, unchanging for all time, fixed in place forever. Now, implicitly, and this is an example of semantics hiding big philosophical questions, what immutability would have implied was the permanent division of Germany, and in fact, the permanent division of Europe. And so the Western delegations insisted, no, 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 not immutability, inviolability, which meant in their interpretation, that frontiers could not be changed by force, but they could be changed peacefully through mutual consent, which would leave open the possibility of reuniting Germany and redrawing the map of Europe at some future point. That, and, and the, the negotiations eventually found consensus using the word inviolability the Western principle. If the negotiations had operated simply on a majority vote, that question would have been resolved pretty quickly. Uh, the Soviets would have lost. I mean, maybe they would have walked out of the negotiations, but it dragged on and on and on. And eventually they found a solution that, was, that, that pleased everyone. And that, that lengthy dynamic and the way that the negotiations produced this result reflected this underlying consensus rule. Now, let me give you a small example, an example that some of the participants found 
hilarious and infuriating at the time. Uh, this is the example of Malta, sovereign state participant in the negotiations, which on a couple of occasions at the last moment threatened to withhold its consent to the whole agreement unless some of its demands related to security in the Mediterranean were satisfied. And under the rules of the negotiations, the Maltese had just as much power, just as much of a right to hold things up as the Soviets did, uh, which infuriated uh, Andrei Gromyka, the Soviet foreign minister, and Henry Kissinger, the American secretary of state, who were trying to come up with some way around this. And eventually, the only possible solution was to give the Maltese what they wanted in, in a clause about Mediterranean security that ultimately it's, it satisfied the Maltese and its impact on the accords as a whole was pretty minor, but it allowed the Maltese prime minister, Dom Mintoff, to come back to Malta and say, look at this great victory that I secured for Maltese interests. And one of the leading Maltese newspapers had a banner headline which proclaimed Europe bows to Mintoff because he held their feet to the fire and got what Malta wanted at the last minute, right in the summer of 1975, right before the summit was supposed to take place. So those are a couple of examples, both big and small, of how this consensus rule worked in practice. And I think also why it was so important. One figure who really fascinated me throughout the book was Anatoly Kovalev. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but he was a uh, deputy foreign minister and he was certainly a more liberal figure for the Soviet Union. And in many ways, he is what, hap what happened. He led in some ways to the uh, more liberal views within the basket three or like the third grouping of, of policies in the uh, Helsinki Accords. So was he sort of the primary figure that led it to this sort of inevitable, not in a, that led it to a more liberal, more humanitarian based accords, or was that more beyond him? This is a great example of why individuals matter and how individuals can have a big impact on in the direction of international politics. Anatoly Kovalyov, as you suggest, was a very senior Soviet diplomat. Uh, he was deputy foreign minister and the head of the Soviet delegation at the negotiations. And he was a deeply cultured, very sophisticated person. As I mentioned in the, in the book, he loved to write poetry and he would, he published his poetry in, in Soviet journals. And he wrote these uh, very beautiful, very revealing memoirs of his diplomatic career, focusing especially on the Helsinki negotiations. This was one of the, reading his memoirs was one of the key moments for me in writing the book, because the memoirs reveal that he was, although a very senior Soviet official, he was uneasy with the direction that the Soviet Union had taken in the late 1960s and into the 70s. He believed that the, the Soviet Union, other communist systems, if they were to survive, needed to open themselves to the world. 
not to turn capitalist. He was not a capitalist. He was not a liberal Democrat. He was, I think maybe you, you could call him a liberal reformer. And in his view, unless the Soviet Union did reform through things, measures like relaxing censorship and opening exchanges to the outside world, scientific exchanges, literary exchanges, cultural exchanges, economic exchanges, unless the Soviet Union did those things, the system was just going to keep ossifying and eventually fall apart. His views were actually not so different, I think, from the ideas of some of the leading Soviet dissidents of this period, especially the great physicist, Andrei Sakharov, who made some of these same arguments in the illegal Samizdat essays that, were, that he wrote and circulated in this period. Now, Kovalyov's views, and he wasn't alone in holding these views in the Soviet government, they mattered for the negotiations and for the ultimate shape of the final act because, again, because of this consensus rule, Western governments were very firm in demanding provisions in basket three, as you mentioned, on the freer movement of people, the freer movement of information. So allowing people to travel across the Iron Curtain, allowing books and movies and radio programs, magazines, newspapers to circulate more freely, East and West. And for years during the negotiations, they, they didn't get very far. The Western Europeans, the, the Americans, Canadians didn't get very far in making these demands. Finally, in 1975, it became clear that the Soviets were not going to get a deal. The West was not going to agree to sign the accords unless the Soviets consented to at least some of these measures in basket three. And this put Kovalyov in a tough position, both within the Soviet delegation, because there were other senior members of the Soviet delegation who had much harder line views than he did, like Yuri Dubinin, who held the rank of ambassador and was one of the key players in the Soviet delegation. And also within the Soviet government more generally, because there were staunch opponents of, of opening up of liberalization. And so Kovalyov faced a choice. Would he push for Soviet acceptance of these measures, or would he stick to this hardline view? And so he, he was in frequent contact with the foreign ministry, with Gromyka back in Moscow, and he made the case, and I think he did this in a very deliberate way, that if Brezhnev and Gromyka and other Soviet leaders, if they wanted a deal, they had to give the West basket three. And I think he personally hoped that basket three would be would would would, would work would would uh, be inserted into the final document, and so he made the case within the Soviet government, and when the time came for the Soviet delegation to to make its position known, there was a showdown between Kovalyov uh, and a couple of other more reform-minded officials on the one hand and the hardliners on the delegation on the other, and Kovalyov said, "We are going ahead with this. We are going to grant our approval." And I'm putting my reputation on the line. I'm staking my career on this. We're going to do it. And we're going to move ahead and sign off on this. And he got Moscow's approval and did it. And so without, without him and the, the support of other more liberal members of the delegation, 
including you have Mendelevich, who's another ambassador on the delegation. And perhaps surprisingly, the KGB officer attached to the delegation also signed off on this. Without that push, that fight within the Soviet government, within the Soviet delegation, basket three wouldn't have happened. And so I think Kovalyov is an absolutely pivotal figure here. And I think he, he, he draws our attention to the fact that there were, yes, Soviet dissidents making arguments for liberalization from outside of the Soviet government at the time. But also we have to recognize that there were reformers inside the Soviet government. These were, you might say, the intellectual predecessor, Mikhail Gorbachev and the reforms of the 1980s. And I think it's, it's notable that when Gorbachev received the Nobel Peace Prize at the end of the Cold War, he didn't go to receive it in person. Instead, who did he send to the ceremony to deliver, to accept the prize in his stead and deliver his speech in his stead? He sent Anatoly Kovalyov. Now, near the end of the book, you note the differences between the immediate and ultimate reaction to the final act. Ronald Reagan is, I think, a good, like he was primarying Gerald Ford at the time, and his immediate reaction was more negative. And then I believe this is 1984, he said something more positive about it. But even people that aren't doing political decisions, such as George Kennan, their immediate reactions was more negative. So I guess political, it's easy to understand why someone would react. But in terms of intellectuals, who I guess in, an, in the abstract are searching for truth or what they believe is true, why would they react negatively? Did they not read it or was there was something else going on? We need to distinguish between the reaction in the United States and the reaction in Western Europe. In the United States, the reaction within the government and within much of the government, not all of it, within much of the government and also publicly was quite negative in 1975. And I think the, the reason for that is that very few people understood what the agreement signified. On top of that, the Soviet government, even though, as I argue in the book, the Soviets had, had lost just about every important argument during the negotiations. But nevertheless, they launched a loud propaganda campaign in 1975 to tout the great victory that the USSR had won at the negotiations. They presented this as a huge success. And I think in, a, in an ironic way, many American observers bought the Soviet propaganda. Their view was, well, if it's a victory for the West, why are the Soviets so proud of it? And so the initial reaction was, was quite harsh, except the one exception in the United States was in the State Department, those officials who had been following the negotiations understood uh, that actually the West had gotten almost everything that it wanted, that this was a big success, potentially a, a, an important tool in fighting the Cold War. They had a much more positive view, as did many of the officials in Western Europe who had been following the negotiations and some commentators in the Western European press. Opinion, public opinion, I should say, informed opinion, the, the people writing opinion columns in the newspapers in Western Europe was, let's say it was divided. There was as much support as criticism because people there paid more attention to it because it was more directly uh, relevant to them. But if you, if you look, for example, at the articles written by a, a British journalist who wrote for the, the Times, the Times of London, Richard Davy, who I had the, the chance to interview for the book, his coverage throughout 
from start to finish. He was one of the few journalists who followed the negotiations closely and really understood what was going on. His coverage in the Times was very positive. And he emphasized that this was a big success for the West because he, he actually knew what had happened in Geneva and Helsinki. Part of your answer to the so what question that you said was very important at the beginning, I think is that it was sort of the framework for the end of the Cold War and that Gorbachev used it in his efforts to liberalize the Soviet or to open up the Soviet Union. So was were these accords, it's hard, it's, there's no counterfactual, but were these accords truly necessary for him to achieve that? Or was it, I mean, if it's his view, he's going to get it done and doesn't have to, because it's not a Uh, It was never a treaty, and there were reasons for that, but did he need the accords to help him achieve his goals? The final act made an important contribution to ending the Cold War the way that it ended, and the accords served as a blueprint for the post-Cold War Europe that emerged in 1989 and 1990. We cannot say that the accords caused the end of the Cold War by themselves. And similarly, to raise your counterfactual, could Gorbachev have ended the Cold War, or could Gorbachev in conjunction with Bush and Cole and Mitterrand and so on, have ended the Cold War if the Helsinki negotiations had failed? I think the answer has to be yes. Of course, they could have done it. Would it have looked the same? Would they have ended in the same way? Would they have ended so quickly and so peacefully? I think that's harder to say. So what what was the impact that they did have? Well, the Accords presented a, a vision of Europe reunified, Germany reunified under Western liberal democratic values very broadly, and a particular set of human rights. And the the ideas, the core principles of the Accords were almost exactly congruent with some of Gorbachev's core convictions in foreign policy and some of the changes that he begins to implement in Soviet foreign policy after he becomes general secretary in 1985. His concept, one of his central concepts in foreign policy was the common European home, which is to say thinking about Europe not as two camps that are rivals of one another, but a single political space united by shared values rather than two sets of values, a single idea of legitimacy rather than two rival concepts of legitimacy, undergirded by human rights, self-determination, states' ability to choose their own alliances, and so on. These are all fundamental to Gorbachev's ideas. And these are principles that are, that are present, that are central in the Helsinki Accords. Now, can we say that Gorbachev got his ideas from the Helsinki Accords? I think that is very tricky to say. I think that's a, that's a hard argument to make. But he embraces, Gorbachev explicitly embraces Helsinki because it fits with his vision. And many of the senior officials that he appoints to conduct Soviet foreign policy that he, that he leans on, like Anatoly Chernyayev, like Kovalyov, they embody the spirit of Helsinki. And this is the, the Helsinki vision is basically their vision for the future of Europe. And so Helsinki becomes 
a very helpful tool for Gorbachev in his fights within the Soviet government against the hardliners. And so we, we, we can see in arguments at the Politburo, for example, when hardliners are resisting changes that Gorbachev wants to make, Gorbachev can invoke Helsinki and say, look, we made this promise. We have to live up to our promise on, let's say, ending the jamming of Western radio broadcasts. We made this promise. We have to live up to it. I think another way in which Helsinki had a big impact on the end of the Cold War was that Western leaders could invoke Helsinki principles in their negotiations with the Soviets. And those arguments were, were persuasive to Gorbachev. He was open to them. He bought them. This is especially apparent, for example, in the two plus four negotiations over the future of Germany, the reunification of Germany. George H.W. Bush and Helmut Kohl, the American president, the West German chancellor at the time, say to Gorbachev, look, the Helsinki Accords specify that states, that international borders can be changed through the consent of the states concerned. If states decide to change their borders peacefully, they can do it. So that means that East and West Germany can reunify. And Gorbachev says, yes, uh, you're right. And similarly, when they came to negotiate what would happen to Soviet forces stationed on East German territory, what would happen to East Germany's membership in the Warsaw Pact after German reunification, Bush and Kohl could point to the Helsinki Accords, which explicitly gives states the right to choose their own alliances and say, the reunified Germany can choose which alliance it belongs to. No alliance at all, NATO, the Warsaw Pact, NATO and the Warsaw Pact. And so if reunified Germany wants to get rid of Soviet troops on its soil, it has the sovereign prerogative to do that. And Helsinki makes that explicit. And again, Gorbachev said, yes, you're right. He accepted that. So the Accords, I think we can say that in a, in a way that's hard to pinpoint precisely, they certainly inspired reforms in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe more generally. They certainly inspired dissidents in places like Poland, places like Czechoslovakia. They gave Gorbachev and reformers within the Soviet government ammunition to use against uh, their conservative rivals within the government. And they also gave Western leaders ammunition, principles that they could lean on in negotiating the way that the Cold War ended. And if you look at the Europe that emerges from the Cold War in 1989 and 1990, it fits exactly with the principles laid down in Helsinki in 1975. And the closest thing that Europe had to a peace treaty to end the Cold War, which is the Charter of Paris for a New Europe signed in 1990, that Charter of Paris is a reaffirmation, a recapitulation of the Helsinki Accords. It's signed in 1990 at the second summit meeting of the CSCE. The first one was Helsinki in 1975, second one was in Paris in 1990, and it is a recapitulation, an endorsement of those Helsinki principles. And so in these, all of these important ways, the principles laid down at Helsinki are absolutely fundamental for shaping the way that the Cold War ended and for providing this vision of international order and international legitimacy that emerges in Europe 
at the end of the Cold War. Going to my closing questions, who is a scholar who had a big impact on your intellectual upbringing? I've been so lucky over the course of my life to have a long succession of outstanding teachers. And I could, I could talk to you for hours about the wonderful teachers that I've been so fortunate to. I would highlight three in particular, one from my undergraduate days at the University of Toronto and a couple from my graduate years at Yale. At the University of Toronto, I had a professor of Canadian history named Robert Bothwell, who taught a course on the history of Canadian foreign policy, Canadian foreign relations. And one of the things that made that course so compelling, so inspiring, was, first of all, he showed the pattern of events, the, the trajectory and shape of events over a long period of time. So looking at 200 years and seeing how the same patterns, the same problems repeat themselves again and again and again. And it, it, it was the first time, I think, that I had a, a sense of, of international history, in particular history in general, as not just one damn thing after another, but as a series of big questions, a series of, of patterns, dilemmas that extend over long periods of time, problems and questions that keep coming up again and again and again. So I had a, I had a sense of, the, of the, the architecture of history, the shape of history for the first time. And the second thing that Bob did so wonderfully was to bring historical actors alive. He did these wonderful, incredibly vivid impersonations of the people we would talk about. You know, people you think of from the 19th century, the early 20th century as just dull, fixed black and white photographs. He would impersonate them in class the way a, the way a comedian would do an impersonation. And it was so, I have no idea how accurate it was, but it was so vivid, so memorable, so funny. It just, it made it all, it made it all come alive. And so he demonstrated that this, the subjects we were talking about were critically important, but you could deal with that important, you could deal with those important subjects in a lighthearted way, in a very human and humane way. At Yale, I was fortunate, as you mentioned, to study with John Gaddis and also with Paul Kennedy, two outstanding international historians. And they emphasized a few things to me. And I think to the other students that they taught, and they've taught many students over the years. One was the importance of writing clearly, writing well. Uh, they had, especially John, absolute intolerance for muddy prose, for awkward prose. And when I would submit essays or chapters to them, they would come back all marked up. And on the one hand, that can be a little bit deflating. If you work hard on something and get it back covered in comments and corrections and rewritings and so on. But on the other hand, it was hugely educational, hugely useful, uh, because they showed that it's, that it's possible to turn clunky prose into elegant prose just by thinking more clearly, by understanding that clear writing is clear thinking, clear thinking produces clear writing. The other thing that they both emphasized was 
thinking about international history ambitiously. That is to say, thinking about it on the widest possible scale. Paul Kennedy, of course, is famous for his book, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which looks at 500 years of history and finds the pattern, finds the, finds the, the through line through this long and complicated period. And taking on, taking on big topics and not being afraid of them, being, being courageous <laughs> in tackling things that seem difficult and in finding, finding the patterns in them, finding the, the crucial ideas that make a, a complex subject comprehensible. And so I, I guess the, the, the way I would, I would distill this is to say they, they brought home to me the importance of elegance both in writing and also in interpretation. So the, the elegant interpretation of rise and fall or the elegance of the interpretation of John's strategies of containment and also ambition. Who is a younger scholar people should pay more attention to? I'm extremely fortunate here at uh, the University of North Carolina to have fantastic graduate students in the program. And so I would highlight a couple of recent graduates who have just in the last couple of years published their first books that I think are uh, really exciting and uh, worth checking out. The first is Brian Drowen, who is an officer on active duty with the US Army, who took some time out from his military service to come and do a PhD here. And he focused on the history of human rights in the 20th century. And he published his dissertation as a book with uh, Cornell University Press called Brutality in the Age of Human Rights. And it looks at how concepts of human rights influenced or did not influence the British government when it was fighting counterinsurgency campaigns in the British empire during the era of decolonization. And it's a uh, highly original book based on this really exciting research that he did in these brand new, newly declassified archives in in England that the British government pretended for many years didn't exist. It turned out that they did exist and Brian got access to them and they are they undergird the work that he did in this, in this book, which is just terrific. Uh, the second person I wanna highlight is Joe Joseph, Joe Steeb, another recent graduate of our program. He's a, currently a postdoc at Ohio State University and his specialty is American foreign policy. And he just published this year, his dissertation, his first book, which is about the origins of the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. And rather than focusing on the immediate debates in 2003, he looks at the deeper history, going all the way back to the end of the Cold War, the first Gulf War, and looking at the patterns in American domestic politics, emphasizing the interplay between domestic politics and foreign policy. And the case that he makes is that over the course of the 1990s, this consensus emerged in American domestic politics that favored the abandonment of the old policy of containment, the containment of Iraq, and embraced instead a policy of regime change. And what that meant, Joe argues, was that by 2003, there was already considerable momentum in American domestic politics in favor of invading Iraq. 
And, and so the, the circumstances of the aftermath of 9-11 brought to the surface this impulse in American foreign policy that had been building for the better part of a decade. And his, his book, which he published with Cambridge just this year, I think shows this in, our, in, a, in an absolutely fascinating way. And do current students know more than Athenian students did in the time of the Peloponnesian War? The obvious answer is yes, in all kinds of ways. We know more about uh, science and in math and math than students did 2,500 years ago. I think your, your average uh, ninth grader probably knows more about the natural world than students in Athens did in the fifth century. But I think that's actually, in, in some ways, that's a trivial difference. Uh, because if you look at the deeper questions, things like uh, how do we understand human nature? How do we understand justice? How do we understand what it takes to make a good society? I'm not sure that we've made, well, put it this way. I'm not sure that we have solved those problems in the way that scientists have solved problems over the last uh, 100, 200, 300 years. So we, we have made, I think it's possible to say that we have made, and by we, I mean, let's say Western liberal democracies, enormous moral progress compared to the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks did things that we would find absolutely abominable in the way that they, they treated people. Just look at the Melian dialogue, for example, from Thucydides. And I think we should be, we should be proud of that progress. We should be grateful for that progress. But on the fundamental enduring questions, I'm not sure that we're that much further ahead. At the very least, we have to wrestle with these problems. Every generation has to wrestle with these problems the, the way that Athenian students would have had to wrestle with them 2,500 years ago. Professor Morgan, thank you for being part of IR Talk. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to IR Talk. Again, if you enjoyed the episode, I would really appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. See you on the next episode.